Will you be able to hear me okay in back? Can you hear in back? For me, it's a great and heartfelt pleasure to be back at Duke, especially on this occasion. It's an occasion to reflect on this wonderful institute established by Peter and Ginny Nicholas. It's an occasion to ask ourselves, why is this an institute for environmental policy solutions rather than an institute for something else? Why is the site of this institute Duke rather than somewhere else? And because the environment has become a controversial word today, how important really is the environment? Is environmental damage really significant for us humans and not just for spotted owls and brine shrimp and snail daughters? Are environmental concerns just a luxury for rich first world yuppies, as is often said? Is the environment something that we have to balance against the economy and that we should take into consideration only when we have enough money to do so? I'd like to reflect on these questions from the perspective of my recent book, Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed. In my book, I looked at the importance for a society's survival of not just human environmental impacts, but also of climate change and of a society's enemies and of a society's friendly trade partners and of its political and economic and social institutions and its cultural values. I examined all of those things both in the past and in the present and in the future. So it's a big subject, but a wonderful new institute and its founding is an occasion encouraging us to think big. First, let me make an obvious point, and that is that unlike oak trees, people can move quickly. An acorn has no choice except to sprout at the spot where it happens to fall, but people choose where they will settle depending upon geography and environment. Why do lots of people choose to settle in North Carolina, and why in the Raleigh-Durham area in particular? Why is North Carolina, but not, say, North Dakota, among the 10 most populous and fastest growing states in the US? Why is this great university and this institute and this research triangle located here and not located somewhere else in the United States? The answer to these questions is simple and obvious. It's your environment. Specifically, it's six things about your environment. Your environment is lush and beautiful. It has an ideally temperate climate, except in the month of August. <laughs> You're located just two hours from the most beautiful mountains in the eastern US, and also just two hours from one of the most beautiful seashores. You have beautiful forests, including right here on campus, the most beautiful forest of any American university. At least until recently, your environment was well watered, with enough water, but not too much water. And your land is productive for agriculture. All the other reasons for North Carolina's attraction to Americans go back to those things about your environment. Those environmental considerations are as important for academia and for Duke as for other job sectors. It's not a random accident that Duke attracted this institute and that Duke attracted a great faculty 
and that Duke attracted over 18,000 applicants for the 1,700 placers in this year's entering freshman class. Let me just mention some individual examples of the people that chose to come here and that you attracted. Your director, Tim Profeta, chose to move here from Washington three months ago. He preferred living here over living in our national capital. Your president, Dick Broadhead, chose to move here from Yale a year ago. Your outstanding ecologists include two of my own good friends and closest colleagues whom you succeeded in attracting here from other leading universities. Stuart Pym decided that he would rather live here and work at Duke than live in New York City and work at Columbia. And John Turborg decided that he would rather live and work here at Duke than at Princeton. Peter and Ginny Nicholas could have chosen to found this institute anywhere. They chose to found it at Duke. And finally, as Bill mentioned, the person whom you attracted to come here and whose motives for moving I know best is my own son, Joshua, who moved here from our home in Los Angeles <laughs> and enrolled enrolled in your freshman class just three weeks ago. Joshua and I, of course, had many conversations over the course of the last year and a half about his choice of college. And Joshua always said unequivocally that his first choice was Duke. And he gave two reasons, that Duke is a great university academically, and that he would rather be in the Duke environment than anywhere else for the same reason that your faculty and your president, who make this an academically great university, want to be at Duke. Thus, your beautiful environment is your biggest asset. Ultimately, it's the asset from which all your other assets flow. That's good news on this beautiful day at this beautiful site, but it's also a warning. There are specific reasons why North Carolina and Duke are attractive. It's not a self-perpetuating historical accident that is guaranteed to go on forever. If those specific reasons for your attractiveness deteriorated, then your attractiveness would decline. But there's a common view that says we must balance the environment against the economy. According to this view, maintaining the environment, so it says, costs net money, and that money is a dispensable luxury. According to this view, the economy is supposedly an independent variable, not a dependent variable depending on the environment. This view is especially of concern now because the economy is struggling against big problems in the US and in North Carolina. How can we justify spending money on the environment when we need to invest so much money in the economy and infrastructure here and when the U.S. is now incurring enormous expenses overseas and in New Orleans. Peter and Ginny Nicholas surely asked themselves this question dozens of times between their initially getting interested in creating the Nicholas Institute and their writing the last check. The cruel fact is that North Carolina, at least as much as the rest of the U.S., now faces serious economic difficulties and other problems. Why? Let's step back and let's forget that the Nicholas Institute is devoted to the environment. Let's instead just ask ourselves, what are the fundamental problems, whether environmental or not, 
weighing down on North Carolinians. Let's start with your immediate and pervasive problems. Since the 1990s, North Carolina has had the highest proportional rate of increase of its immigrant population of any U.S. state. That population translates into your urban sprawl. You have a water crisis. At this time when you are attracting more and more people, you have less and less water for them. Because your coastal aquifers are getting pumped down, and because North and South Carolina have been more severely impacted by drought than, by, than any other U.S. states. More people mean more cars and more energy consumption, but you are downwind of the TVA power plants, so that air quality is deteriorating here. And in your beautiful Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the air quality is at times worse than in downtown New York City. Textiles, manufacturing, and banks are leaving your state. Your coastal zone, which is one of your state's main tourist attractions, is losing its attractiveness through development. Global warming is causing a slow rise in sea level that threatens your outer banks because even at present, they're only a few feet above sea level. Global warming is also believed to be leading to an increased frequency and severity of hurricanes and storm surges. You can bet that New Orleans won't be the last American city to be affected. So those are your most immediate and pervasive problems in North Carolina, but your less immediate problems are still serious and expensive. Like the rest of the United States, North Carolina faces a serious long-term energy problem because more people mean more demand for oil. But the oil available to us will decrease because of competition from China and the de developing world as consumers, plus plateauing of world oil supplies. Your reservoirs and water bodies here in the state are threatened by sedimentation because of land clearance for agriculture and construction, plus soil erosion. Pig farming in your coastal plains is a major sector of your agriculture, and your state is home, in fact, to more pigs than people. But pig farms are a huge source of fixed nitrogen whose fate and disposal causes lots of problems. Nearly half of your most productive fish and shellfish stocks are already overfished or a subject of concern. And finally, decades of fire suppression have converted your former pine savannas into loblolly pine forests. The combination of that fire suppression and increasing drought elsewhere already means that my winter home in Los Angeles and my summer home in Montana are every year at risk of billion-dollar forest fires. That hasn't happened to you yet, but it certainly will in the future. Now, let's just reflect about this list of problems that beset North Carolina. Almost all of them, think about them, are problems of the environment or of population, either immediately or ultimately. Even immigration is ultimately a problem of the environment and population because the countries from which our, our immigrants come are not rich, contented, environmentally robust, politically stable countries like Switzerland, but instead they are countries with ravished or unproductive environments, 
public health problems, population problems, and resulting political instability. So the usual talk about balancing the environment and the economy has it exactly backwards. Instead, the strongest motive for taking good care of the environment is that a healthy environment is essential for a healthy economy. Environment and population are the bedrock on which the economy rests. If they become damaged, then the economy becomes damaged. The recent disaster in New Orleans is an example. Because we didn't spend a few billion dollars to take good care of the dikes and the Mississippi Delta Islands, our country now faces an economic bill of several hundred billion dollars. As another example, take the cost of cleaning up or not cleaning up air pollution. A conservative estimate of the annual deaths in the US due to air pollution is about 130,000 people. And the usual estimate of the statistical economic value of one American life is about $5 million. So deaths due to air pollution cost us about $650 billion per year. That illustrates why the US Clean Air Act of 1970, although its cleanup measures did cost us money, they cost us tens of millions of dollars per year, the act has still yielded us estimated net economic savings of about $1 trillion per year. Boy, I wish I could make an investment like that. Due to save lives and reduced health costs. That example of air quality also illustrates my reasons for being basically optimistic, despite all the possible causes for pessimism that I've told you. Because of the US Clean Air Act, US air quality measures have improved by 30% in recent decades, despite far more people and far more cars and far more travel miles. Our problems can be solved. But all of these environmental problems are very complicated. Solving them will require not just political will, but also detailed scientific knowledge. Just think of the scientific complications of global warming and of fire suppression and of fisheries management and of figuring out what to do with the nitrogen from pig farming. Here are five examples of contributions to solving your complicated environmental problems that are already underway at Duke. These contributions will continue to occupy for years the members of Peter and Ginny Nicholas's institute. First, several of your state's big problems involve water. Your water quantity is becoming insufficient and your water quality is deteriorating due to sedimentation plus nitrogen runoff. Most of the rest of the world also suffers from problems of water quantity and quality. Last spring, the Nicholas Institute already held a conference to come up with recommendations for, internal, for international action on water problems. And the Institute will be launching its recommendations on Capitol Hill in October and at the World Water Forum in Mexico next March. Second, one of your two environmental scientists, whom I know best, Stuart Pym, is a world leader in tackling big, famous, controversial environmental problems, including the fate of mountain lions in Florida, the replumbing of the Florida Everglades, which is the most expensive environmental restoration program going on in the US, the conservation of African elephants, 
and figuring out which plant and animal species around the world are at greatest risk of extinction. Those are just some of Stewart's projects. Third, the other one of your environmental scientists whom I know best, my college classmate John Turborg, whom I've known for 51 years. John has been the most important force in conservation biology in one of the world's biologically richest countries, Peru, for the past several decades. John has personally trained most of the leading Peruvian conservation biologists now active. And John has been the driving force behind one of the world's largest rainforest national parks, Peru's Manu National Parks. Fourth, the Nicholas Institute is planning a resource center that will help state governments trying to address problems caused by climate change, such as North Carolina's water and forest and coastal problems caused by climate change. And the Nicholas Institute is doing this, at this for state governments, at this time today when our federal government has copped out on solving those problems. Fifth, let's not forget the problems facing the US overseas, especially the problems of terrorists. Our government is now focusing on short-term military solutions for those overseas problems. But problems of terrorists depend ultimately on poverty, which in turn depends ultimately on the environment and geography and public health and population growth. Every country, including the United States and Sweden, has its own individual crazy terrorists, like our own homegrown Timothy McVeigh and Theodore Kaczynski. But the populations of the US and of Sweden are not desperate enough to support their individual crazy terrorists. I've just given you four examples of efforts here at long-term prevention of environmental problems. But long-term prevention of environmental problems, just as of health problems, is far more effective and far cheaper than attempted short-term military solutions of environmental and population problems or short-term medical solutions of health problems. For example, although short-term military interventions in just two countries are now costing the US about $100 billion per year, there are about 20 more countries waiting to become the next Afghanistans and Iraqs and Somalias. But the cost would be only about $25 billion for a worldwide program to control the world's three most serious infectious diseases, malaria, AIDS, and tuberculosis. And the budget of the Nicholas Institute will be measured in only millions of dollars, not in billions of dollars. But this institute will house over a dozen major environmental projects. Finally, solving environmental problems requires not just doing clever science, but also mustering political will. The scientists here in the Nicholas Institute not only have to figure out innovative solutions, but they also have to convince the public to adopt those solutions as national policy. For example, in the case of global warming, the political will still hasn't caught up to the science. That's the essence of what Peter and Ginny Nicholas intended in creating this institute. This institute is not called the Nicholas Institute for Theoretical Ecology. And it's not called the Nicholas Institute for Just Basic Environmental Research. Instead, it's called the Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions. The current situation that we face in the world today can be compared to 
an exponentially accelerating horse race between the horse of environmental destruction and the horse of environmental salvation. And these two horses are racing at increasing speeds, in fact, at exponentially increasing speeds. And they're currently racing neck to neck. And the outcome of this race between the horse of destruction and the horse of salvation is up for grabs at the moment. But the rate of exponential acceleration of the world's major environmental problems is such that the outcome of our efforts, or of our lack of efforts, to solve these problems is going to get settled within the next 30 to 50 years. That success or failure is the most important factor that will shape the world in which those of you who are now young adults or children will live out your lives. It isn't enough for us parents and grandparents just to take individual action on behalf of our children, like buying life insurance and drawing up our wills and sending our kids to good schools like Duke. All of those efforts for our children, individually, are going to be wasted if conditions like those now prevailing in Somalia and Haiti and Nepal and the Philippines spread to encompass the rest of the world. For example, at the rate at which tropical deforestation is now proceeding, most of the world's tropical rainforests will be destroyed by the year 2030. And that would have enormous consequences for Indonesia and Brazil and other populous tropical countries whose economies depend heavily on their rainforests, and hence would also have enormous consequences for the rest of the world. Because I was born in the year 1937, I may not be around in that year 2030, to see which horse wins this exponentially accelerating race. And Peter and Ginny Nicholas may or may not be around then to see the result either. But 25 years from today, on September 21 of the year 2030, Peter and Ginny's three children, JK, Peter Jr., and Katie, would be only 63, 61, and 58 years old, respectively. And my twin sons, Joshua and Max, will be only 43 years old. Barring individual accidents or world disasters, the Nicholas children and my children are still going to be around in the year 2030. And the quality of their lives then will depend largely on our success or failure at solving the world's environmental and population problems. For that reason, Peter and Ginny Nicholas's decision to set up this institute represents a bigger contribution to the well-being of their children than do the life insurance policies that they may have bought. Their decision, or their decision, also represents a big contribution to the lives of my sons, Joshua and Max, and to my kids' whole generation. For that, I thank Peter and Ginny Nicholas, and I wish all of you involved with this wonderful institute success. Thank you.